And he said he would not have time. I wondered about that boy's salvation for a long time, and now it's pretty well confirmed. <laughs> this is our pastor, okay? Anyway, uh, you pray for him. Uh, he, said he and Amy are traveling this week. Um, this morning, in kind of the tradition of the, the Dickens classic, uh, A Christmas Carol, I want to look at Christmas in three distinct places, in three distinct times, and examine the similarities and the commonalities that we find about Christmas regardless of the time period or the geography that we may be in. And, and let's just start at the beginning. Let's just start. At the very beginning this morning, everybody is familiar with the Christmas story. Um, there's, there's probably not a, not a person in this room who couldn't recite by heart the major elements involved in Jesus actually coming to this earth. We, we, we know the story. We're, we're taught the story um, at a young age, um, we know that um, Joseph and Mary have to make this journey uh, to a little town called Bethlehem. Uh, Bethlehem's about five, six miles south of Jerusalem. Um, it was not a large city by any means. It's still not very big from what I understand. Um, it was not a prosperous city. It was not an economically wealthy city. Uh, Bethlehem uh, was landlocked or is landlocked and didn't have a warm water port where um, ships could come and go and, and, and people could trade um, goods and, and, and things like that. So um, it was not a wealthy place at, at all. Uh, in fact, today, uh, if you if you look it up on the internet, uh, it will tell you that um, Bethlehem's major source of revenue is tourism. Um, that's that's their um, their economy and and how it's driven there in Bethlehem. It was certainly not wealthy back in the first century. Uh, it was a small, rather insignificant place there in the Middle East, but. It was where Joseph had to go. And again, you know the story. Um, Caesar issues a decree that everybody must pay taxes, that a census is taken uh, of the land. And back then, it's not like it is today, where you get a form in the, in the mail and you, you fill out how many people live in your, your household and you mail it back into the government um, a census was much different in the first century than it is in our world today. And you actually had to go back to the origin of your birth and of your family in order to be counted and, and recorded. And, and we know that. We know that's, that's the, the physical reason um, that Joseph and Mary have to make this journey. We also know that Bethlehem's about a 100 miles from Nazareth. 
And in the first century, there was no mass transit system. There, there was no train, uh, no shuttle, um, no, no vehicles of, of any kind. Um, there were donkeys. And if you were fortunate enough, you had one. And if you were unfortunate, you had two. They were precarious animals, to say the least. And the Scripture tells us that this is how Joseph, his young fiancé, very expectant with child, make a hundred-mile journey on one of the dumbest animals in all of God's creation. Merry Christmas. <laughs> this is how life starts for them. And of course, you, you know how, how things go when they, when they get to Bethlehem. Um, because of the decree that, that Caesar had issued and um, all of the people trying to return to their various homes for the census, when they get there, there's absolutely no place for them to stay. And, and we'll come back to, to that in, in just a minute when, when we get to uh, another aspect of looking at Christmas this morning. But suffice it to say um, that when they get to Bethlehem, they find no accommodations, no lodging, no anything. And so they're forced to take up temporary residence in a stable, uh, a barn, a cave. Um, there's, there's a lot of debate as to exactly what the structure actually was, but regardless of what it was, we know what it was not. It was not a place to have a baby. It was not a place that was comfortable. It was not a place that you would, you would choose uh, if you have uh, facing you what Joseph and Mary had. But it's what was there. So we know all of that this morning. My question is, why? Why was Bethlehem so ill-prepared for the coming of the Messiah? Why weren't they ready? Was it because they just didn't know? Well, I think Scripture's going to prove differently for us. If you would, Stephen, put that Scripture from Micah up on the screen for us. It says, but you, Bethlehem, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins and form of old from ancient times. Though you're small, from you will come one who will rule over Israel. The prophet Micah wrote this about 700 years before Jesus decided to be born. And most good Jewish families would recite these verses as well as other prophecies that we find in the Old Testament over and over and over again 
in their family settings. Jewish people were well aware that it had been prophesied that from Bethlehem the Messiah would come. Bethlehem's mentioned a lot in the Old Testament. I, I didn't really realize just how much it, it is talked about even before the birth of Jesus uh, and the significance that it has given how small a little city that it actually was. Bethlehem's first mentioned in the book of Genesis. It plays a part, it plays a role throughout Jewish history. And there was plenty of evidence that it's from Bethlehem that God's going to deliver his people. People were well aware that this was the, the home of David, the king that they um, thought so highly of, that, that they had asked God so long to set up for them. They, they understood this. But here's what I'm afraid happened. Throughout the, the course of time between Micah prophesying that, that Israel would be the birthplace of the Messiah and it actually happening, people went on with life. Yesterday turned into today and today into tomorrow. And pretty soon, there's a lot of time between these words being written and left to us by God and what actually is happening on that night when Joseph and Mary show up. The, the, I guess we could say that really this had been told so long ago that it just didn't mean that much anymore. If it was being recited at the time that the Lord was born, if it was being read on a regular basis still, the time and the distance had allowed a lot of separation in the hearts and the minds of the people. And it just did not mean what it once did. I got a feeling that when when these words were first uttered and, and the people of Bethlehem first read um, the prophecy of God, that, man, it made them sit up. It made them throw their chest out, put a big smile on their face. We're not much now, but one day we're going to be. I think it meant something originally to those people. But those people lived their lives and they died and others came and took their place. And again, the years began to run together. And on the night this prophecy was fulfilled, it just didn't mean that much anymore. And they missed it. We know that part of the story too, don't we? The greatest single event that the world would ever know. And the overwhelming majority of the people right there just missed it. There are a lot of times in Scripture where God does some amazing things and only a few are privy to that information. He's almost secretive about what he does. Some things he does uh, in, in a cloaked fashion where not everybody can, can see it or understand it, but not the birth of his son. 
He didn't mess around with that one. When Jesus was born, thousands and thousands of angels sang. And you could hear it on the earth. When Jesus was born, a a gaseous constellation is on fire in the sky to the point that you can see it in the daylight or in the dark, and you can see it for weeks and probably, historians tell us, months and up to over a year after God placed it there. Angels talk to shepherds the night that Jesus is born. They they have a face-to-face conversation with guys out in the field taking care of sheep. God did not mess around the night he brought his son into the world. It was evident for anybody who wanted to pay attention. But we look at pictures of the nativity scene, and we're reminded only a few did. It just didn't mean that much anymore. Let's fast forward a couple of thousand miles and a couple of thousand years to Bryan, Ohio. Now, Bryan, Ohio is famous for two things. One are the little lollipops called the dum-dum lollipops. You know what I'm talking about, okay? All right, those are made in Bryan, Ohio. I don't know if that's if you want to be famous for dum-dum or not, you know, but they are. But the other claim to fame that Bryan, Ohio has is one of the um, most realistic nativity scenes any place in the country. It's it's a really um, pretty uh, setup that the townspeople. Uh, go to the trouble and to the expense of preparing every year. It's very, very um, awesome to look at from, from what I've read. I, I've never seen it, but they say it's just amazing. Well, as is the case in our country a lot of times, um, there were some folks several years ago who were offended by the nativity scene in Bryan, Ohio. And they took the city to court. And the case made it all the way to the United States Supreme Court. And ironically, the Supreme Court ruled that nativity scenes on public property were permissible at Christmas time. That's... Kind of a shock. That's not what we're used to today. But that's exactly what the Supreme Court said in the case of Bryan, Ohio, that nativity scenes were perfectly legal and permissible even on public property during Christmas time. Sounds good until you read the details. The Supreme Court said that the nativity scene no longer held the religious significance that it once did. That shepherds and angels 
and baby messiahs were now just icons of the holiday season, much like snowmen and reindeer. In other words, one of the one of the uh, the um, the judges, in in his opinion, said the worship of the Christ child does not mean that much anymore in American society. So therefore, it's not a threat, and it's no longer scriptural or spiritual or religious. It's just holiday decorations. Kind of reminds me of the same mentality that we find in Bethlehem the night that Joseph and Mary are there. We as a society have gotten to the point that Jesus is no longer significant enough to even warrant a dissenting opinion by the Supreme Court. He just doesn't matter that much anymore. So it's fine. Put the nativity scene out there. It's just decoration. Now I want us to take it one, one, one step farther. I want you to think with me about your Christmas. The one you're going to have this year. And, and we're all going to do things differently at Christmas, you know, and that's okay. You know, some of us are going to eat too much, and some of us are going to buy too much, and some of us are going to get too much, and, you know, we're all going to do different things. But we're all going to have Christmas one way or another. Next Sunday, if, if the Lord, you know, doesn't come back between now and then, will actually come to pass, and it will be Christmas 2016. Are you ready? Are you really ready? For the advent of the Messiah. Will your Christmas reflect the kind of attention to detail, the kind of spectacularism that God the Father displayed when his son was born? Or if the truth was known, are we going to be more like Bryan, Ohio? Just decoration. Just window dressing. Are we going to be like the first nativity in that little town of Bethlehem and be completely caught off guard and unaware? I, you know, we, we read the story about Bethlehem and, and, we, we see in Luke's account where it says that Jesus was born and his mother wrapped him in, in, in cloths and blankets and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Now, if you really delve into that just a little bit, 
You know, in is an English word that had to be substituted for the, the original that was written. And the word in, talking about the birth of Christ, and the word in, in the parable that Jesus tells about the Good Samaritan, you know, he talks about taking the, the stranded um, person that was beaten on the roadside and, and providing him lodging in the inn. Those are two different words. Those are two completely different words. Shane, I've been around Daryl Smith so long that I'm starting to decipher Greek. Okay? Forgive me, Lord. But the word in Luke's account of the birth of Christ really means a guest room in a home. The word in the story of the Good Samaritan for in, that means what we think of. Uh, a hotel, motel, some some place that was professionally um, set up to lodge travelers. But in the story of the birth of Jesus, the word in literally means somebody's guest room at their house. So what does that say to us this morning? You see, that was a crucial element in Jewish culture and tradition. It was part of the Levitical law. If you go all the way back to the time of Moses, if you look in the, in the book of Leviticus, God specifically gives instructions about how to deal with travelers and foreigners who may come to your home. You were supposed to have a place that was ready to accept and receive somebody that you absolutely didn't know. That was, that was one of the marks of your faith and, and one of the, the, the benchmarks of being a good Jew is that you were prepared should somebody need to spend the night. Very customary for these folks. Um, that tradition stays with us a long, long time. A few years ago, Chandler and I went to Washington, D.C., and we got a chance to go to Mount Vernon to, to George Washington's home. And one of the things that struck me about his house that I did not know about at all was that there was a room that Martha kept ready for strangers and travelers who would come by and need a place to stay. I mean, you think about that. People that they did not know would come and spend the night with the president. It was just the way you did things. So when Joseph and Mary get to Bethlehem and there's no room for them in the inn, in all likelihood what that means is that their very relatives turned them away. That's who Joseph would have gone to. He would have gone to people who knew him or knew his father or knew somebody in his family. That would have been the connection. Those would have been the doors that he logically would have knocked upon. And every place that he went, they said, we don't have room. Those people who were indirectly related to Jesus himself 
sent him away. Did not have room for him. Room's another word that we think of in in our vernacular that's different than the way it was in Bethlehem the night that Jesus was born. We think of room as a place that has four walls and a door and there's some element of privacy to it. Really, a better word is the word space. When Joseph's relatives turned him away time and time again, what they actually were saying is, we don't have any space to fit you in. You see, this census has just overwhelmed us. This decree that was issued has just sent us in a tailspin, and we've got people stacked up like cordwood in here. We're wall to wall, and there's no space in our home. There's no space in our life for the Messiah. Man, that sounds like us. This thing that we call life has just overwhelmed us. It sent us into a tailspin. And do you have any idea how much I've got to do between now and next Sunday? God, do you know who's coming to our house? God, why are you sending these people to our house? All of these things that we have to do, all of these things are stacking together, and I'm running out of time, and I'm running out of space, and I literally don't have any room to fit Jesus in. So easy, so easy for that to happen to us, and we never even realize it. We don't mean to do it. But that's exactly the course that many of us find ourselves this time of year. And it just doesn't mean to us what it used to. This morning I think it's really, really imperative that we prepare for the coming of Christ. He said, well, Cody, that's, that's an odd way to put that. He's, he, he's been here. He's already come. I understand that. But just as the people in Bethlehem should have prepared for his coming that night, we have to prepare ourselves, we have to prepare our hearts to receive him. And Christmas should mean what it used to mean. We should never get so old and so busy that it loses its significance to us. I used to be one of these people, I just confessed to you this morning, I hated when they put the Christmas stuff out early in the stores. You go in there in August and there are Christmas decorations up. It's 112 degrees. And there are Christmas decorations everywhere. And it just used to infuriate me. We'd go into a store and Cricket would like 
pre-warned me. Now listen, they're going to have Christmas decorations. Just don't go over there, okay? We don't need to get thrown out again. <laughs> but y'all, as I examined that, I, I was wrong. I was wrong. We ought to want them to put the Christmas decorations up. If God would go to the trouble that he went to to announce the birth of his son, and we are the complete and total recipients of that gift, why in the world would we not want to just immerse ourselves in it all of the time? I was wrong about that. Christmas should be in the same category as football and pizza. You just can't get enough of it. We should have the anticipation of a child at Christmas each and every time we think about what Jesus did in order to bring himself and make himself accessible to each of us. We should be just a little bit giddy. We should be excited We should not let the the societal norms, the, the pressure, the fatigue, all of those kinds of things that we so easily associate with Christmas, we should not crowd out the space in our hearts and in our lives. There should always be an abundance of room for Jesus. I want you to do this with me this morning as we get ready to close our service. If you would, bow your head and and close your eyes for just a minute. And I want you to imagine someone in your life that means a great deal to you. Once you've, once you've thought of that person, if, if you're a parent, it's gonna, it's gonna be, it's gonna be a child. If you're not a parent, it, it may be a, a spouse or a relative or a great friend, but somebody that really means the world to you. And then in your imagination, kind of like Dickens did with Scrooge in the Christmas Carol, I want you to also imagine you finding the perfect Christmas gift for that individual. Regardless of what it cost or what it cost you or the time and the effort and the trouble that it took, you found it. You know deep down in your heart, this is what they want, this is what they need, this will be the gift that makes a difference in in their life. And you got it. And now it's Christmas morning. And the gifts are being opened. But that most special of gifts that you got for that most special person isn't touched. They're just not interested. Oh, they don't say a whole lot. They don't want to offend you. 
the truth is they've got other things that are occupying their time and attention. And your gift stays under the tree. It never gets opened. And they never experience what you went to so much trouble for them to get to have. If you're honest this morning, that scenario would break your heart. You'd ask yourself, why? Why wouldn't they even open it? Why wouldn't they even look to see? Why wouldn't they even give it a shot? It would crush you. That's exactly the way our father feels this morning. When we reject the gift of his son. He says to himself, I went to so much trouble. I spared no expense. I promise it's exactly what you need. You'll love it. It'll change your life. Don't walk away and leave it there. It's got your name on it. I sent it just for you. All you got to do is open it. All you got to do is take it. That's our prayer this morning. Father, we thank you for the incredible gift of your son. And God, we pray together this morning that if if there's anybody, Father, who's with us today that's truly never, ever had the thrill and the unabashed excitement of encountering Jesus, that this would be the Christmas. This would be the time that they take that gift and they They apply it to their hearts and to their lives. Anybody here, Father, who's never received Jesus, then we pray in the next few minutes that you would reveal yourself to them through the power of the Holy Spirit. And they would say yes to you. And God, for those of us that have, for those of us, God, that are privileged to call you our Father, our prayer is, God, that you would allow us to be reignited with the excitement that is Christmas. That it can never be said in our homes that it just doesn't mean what it used to mean. That we understand the significance of this time of year. We understand the power that you put forth, the the miles and the ages and the, the barriers that you transcended. Not only to get to Bethlehem, but to get to Huntington, Texas. That we might have life everlasting and we might have life abundant. God, let Christmas mean what it should mean. In each of our hearts and each of our homes this year. We pray together in Jesus' name.
Would you stand with us this morning as Byron leads us?